You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, our, our text is short this morning, but um, the significance of this text is towering, as we're going to see here in a few moments. And I uh, initially was going to take verses 12 through 20. Uh, the verses that follow uh, verse 12 are the response to what Jesus says in verse 12, and I was going to take that and begin to look at the response Uh, But uh, having spent some time with verse 12, I think it's time that we begin to put together a bunch of pieces that are laying out there. It's kind of like assembling a grill. I know all of you love to assemble those grills. Uh, uh, Thank goodness nowadays, a lot of times you can buy a gas grill already assembled. But if you've ever had the, the pleasure of assembling a grill, there's a lot of pieces. And what do you do? You pull them out and you set them in some kind of order. And uh, believe it or not, that's what we've been doing with John's gospel. We've been pulling out all of these pieces, and we've been setting around, and we have been assembling different parts as we've been going along. But here in verse 12, it, it, it really become clear to me that we need to uh, work on assembling some things together uh, with what Jesus is saying here. And uh, before I begin to, to develop this passage, let me give you a little um, heads up on what we're going to do. Uh, what I'd like to do is flesh out just what Jesus means here when he says that he is the light of the world. What exactly does that mean? And I have two interests in doing this. One, of course, is to explain what it means, but not simply just to explain what it means. I want to take you through how we can discover from Scripture ourselves. Uh, in what it means. And we do this, one, by looking at the immediate context. Then we look at the greater context, if we will. So we're going to be looking at the context of John's gospel. And then from there, we're going to take a look at the context of the prophets, the context of the Psalms, and the context of the Pentateuch, if you will, namely Exodus. So uh, we're going to start right in John's gospel, and we're going to work our way back, if you will, uh, into the Old Testament. And we're, not, and we're not going to limit ourselves simply to looking at the biblical context. We're also going to take a look at the historical context. Now, why would we do this? Because Jesus teaches us to do this. How does Jesus teach us to do this? Because if we study his teaching, we see that that's what Jesus does. So it's always good to do what Jesus does, right? And we learned that in Sunday school. Um, and we even have a directive in our text this morning to follow him, so we're going to follow uh, his example. Now, before we begin, just a couple words about the immediate context here. Um, last week, we took uh, chapter 753 through verse 11, and uh, in that, I explained that um, there, uh, there's a lot of folks who um, um, do not believe that that's part of the Word of God. And in fact, the position that, that I took last week is one of a, it's a minority position. Um, today, it's a minority position for sure. And um, I'm not going to repeat everything I said last week, but many of you will have notes in your Bible that say something like, 
the earliest manuscripts do not include this particular passage. And I'm okay with preaching this as long as we share that there are problems. Uh, some of the really old manuscripts that we have don't include these, these verses. Some of the old manuscripts that we have have these verses, but they're in different places. And uh, when these verses are compared, there's some variations. So there are indeed some manuscript problems for sure on this. And that's what our, it, this shouldn't, um, some people take the position they're never going to talk about this because they're afraid that this will weaken our uh, faith in the Word of God, but we must not take that uh, stance. The English translators are, are pointing this out to us as we go along. And what the English translators are doing is they're saying, listen, when there's a problem, we're pointing it out to you. And I like to make a lot of noise about it, especially for our youngsters, because when they go off to university, they may, come, they may become before a professor who enjoys pointing this out. And if they don't know about these things, then they don't understand these things. Their faith, it can be a wrecking ball to their faith if they hear it for the first time from a skeptic. Uh, so I don't want them to hear it uh, for the first time from a skeptic. I want, to hear, I want them to hear it the first time here. There is some... Uh, manuscript problems with this text. However, that being said, I still take the position uh, that, uh, one, the story did indeed happen. Uh, and even many who say this is not part of John's gospel per se uh, believe that the story happened. I take the position that the story happened, and I take the position that uh, it is indeed uh, part of John's gospel. And I wouldn't preach it without explaining all of this, but uh, that's the position I've, I've taken. Today, it's a minority one. Uh, but um, there's been a lot of great and faithful Bible teachers who have taken this position over the years. I could mention a few names. Uh, Arthur Pink would be one. Um, uh, William Hendrickson would be another. Uh, some of you are familiar with J.C. Ryle's writings, and you love J.C. Ryle, and you love reading J.C. Ryle. He took the position this was Scripture. Um, but he also, in his... In his um, exposition of it said, listen, there are great people that we should listen to on both sides of this. So uh, that's the spiel there. Now, I point this to your attention because if 753 through 811 are part of John's gospel, then verse 12 follows 11. Fair enough. But if it's not, verse 12 seems to follow verse 52. Sometimes people make an argument one way or the other by talking about how it flows where they'll say, okay, pull, pull out 753 through 811 and read and see how the argument flows. And they'll point out, see, it doesn't flow well. When, and the others will say it flows great, and they'll explain why. And I don't know that we really make any progress that way. Um, but for our sakes this morning, um, let's just say, what, let's make the, the plain things the main things. And what we have here in verse 12 is John says, again, Jesus spoke. So Jesus is speaking again. Whether it is the, uh, uh, on the same uh, uh, occurrence that we have in verse 37 and 38 of John 7, or whether it's on the next morning, if you will, if we're following uh, 753 and 8.1. Either way, Jesus spoke again to them. Jesus spoke again to them saying, I am the light of the world. Now, what does that message mean? Well, immediately we, we see the I am statement, and what do we do with that? We, uh, that takes us to the burning bush where 
Uh, God meets with Moses, correct? And God gives his name to Moses. And I'm going to save that for down the road because we're going to get more of that in John chapter 8, especially as we get towards the end of this chapter. So we're going we're to save that. Let me just say now, this is the second of what has been called the I am sayings. The first one, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The second one here, he says, I am the light of the world. But for this morning, let's focus on this phrase, light of the world. How are we to understand that? And I think for the most part, we can make some general considerations. Uh, we, can, we can say this. I think all of us understand, even from young um, childhood, that light is good and dark is sometimes meant to be bad. Uh, light is good, darkness is bad, or light is righteousness, darkest, darkness is wickedness, if you will. Sometimes we refer to music as being dark. When we refer to certain music as being dark, what are we saying? Uh, well, we're saying it's not exactly light, right? And we can understand that. We get that. Uh, we understand that light, speak, light can be used to speak of truth where darkness would be used to communicate deceit or falsehood. And uh, John is using that in his gospel. He is certainly using uh, these metaphors, if you will, of light and darkness. And not only is he using them, he's comparing them and contrasting them uh, with one another. Now, the, the reader of John's gospel um, is probably saying, now, we have encountered this before, and that is right. And you might be thinking, where did I encounter this before? Well, if you go all the way back to the beginning, to John's prologue, to the beginning of John's gospel, to chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4, really verses 1 through 5, uh, here we see that John has already introduced this. Uh, there we read these famous words. I was teaching these words to uh, um, uh, Kylie and Anna last night before they went to bed. I, I read from uh, verse 1, uh, in the beginning was the Word, uh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And at breakfast this morning, Kylie was able to spit that back to me. Do you believe that? She heard that right before bedtime, and this morning, I said, what did we, what did we talk about last night? And she, she rattled this right off perfectly, you know, then praise the Lord for that. Uh, but in the beginning was the Word. And uh, what, do, what do we understand about that? Well, the Word was with God and the Word was God. And we've been over this before. What, is this, what does this mean? Well, in, in the beginning takes us back before everything was made. Takes us back before creation. In fact, it's taking us back into eternity. And there in eternity, we are told there was the Word. And we're told about this word, that this word was with God. And we're told that this word was God. He was with God. He was in the beginning with God. And that all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And what is John doing here? John is, he is uh, showing uh, the word, if you will, uh, who is rightfully what we call the second person of the Trinity, none other than the Son of God. He is showing that he is over creation, if you will. Here he is in his majesty sitting over creation, that creation itself actually has come to be through him. 
that it is a work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in concert in order to create creatures. So in this context, we have creation, creation. And in verse 4, we're told that in him, that is in the word, in him was life. Now, what does that teach us? That teaches us that he is the fountain of life, that in the word, if you will, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, he is the fountain of life. Now, what life are we talking about? Are we talking about spiritual life that the Holy Spirit imparts to us that we might call being born again or being regenerate? No, the context is creation. Here's the life is to be, as some of the commentators say, it's to be considered in its widest significance. This would be our lives, our hearts beating this morning. You know, many of you are in the medical community. You know, a person is alive as long as the Lord sustains him or her. Life is in him. He is the fountain. He is the source of life. Not just our lives, but also the animal kingdom, the insect kingdom, uh, the plant kingdom, uh, everything where life exists. In him is life. And the second part of verse 4 is really instructive for us. We're told that the life was the light of man. Now, if that sentence won't make you scratch your head, you say, what does that mean? How is this life, light, namely the life that's in the Word, namely the life that is in the Son, how is He light of all men? Well, the Bible is its best interpreter. The Bible interprets itself. And we actually have a commentary on this verse in Romans. If you, if you keep your place in John, and I think it's worthwhile to turn uh, to Romans chapter 2. We'll start with Romans 2. Romans 1 and 2 both speak to this. But let's start with Romans 2, and let's look at verse 14. Romans 2 and verse 14. Where there we read, Paul says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even, they do not, even though they do not have the law. Now, Someone will be saying, well, that just shine a, that's bright and clear now. Thank you. Paul's not always easy to follow, is he? What's Paul saying here? Well, he says, for when Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? You have the Jews who are descendants of Abraham, and then you have everybody else. So you have the Jews and you have the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Everyone else. Everyone else. And the distinction that Paul is making is the distinction between those who have God's word and those who do not have God's word. Now, Paul will pick this back up later in, in Romans. He'll pick this up about the oracles of God, if you will. And what he is saying here is he's saying when Gentiles, you know, when all of the other people of this world who do not have the law, God gave his law to Israel. So when all these other people who do not have the law, nevertheless, Oh, do the law, they show that, in a sense, uh, they have the law, 
written in their hearts, if you will. If you look at verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's teaching us a lot about how we have been made. How has God created us? He's created us in such a way that he's instilled a certain amount of his law in our hearts. This is how we can have a basic understanding and a fundamental understanding of what is right and what is wrong. You know, when we're little, uh, sometimes people say, now you know better. There you go, yeah, you know better. It's not usually a good moment when we're hearing that, is it? Now, you know better. What does that mean? Well, even, really, even before our parents teach us not to rebel against them, we know it's wrong to rebel against them. How do we know it's wrong? Because God has put it in our hearts. He's put it in our hearts. We've been made in such a way that we have this moral compass, if you will, in our hearts where we know things are right and things are wrong. We have this basic understanding. It's fallen. It's fractured, and our consciousness can become seared by doing what is wrong over and over again for sure. In fact, Romans 1 speaks about that. And starting in verse 18, uh, Paul says there in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Anyone as an unbeliever who reads verse 18 should tremble, should tremble. Uh, if we really believe verse 18, would tremble. Uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So here, um, oh, well, look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, you've heard me, many of you have heard me speak about this uh, many times before. And uh, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that in every human being, there is uh, this knowledge that God exists because we're reasonable creatures. At the very least, we can say we're reasonable creatures and we can look around from what has been made and we can see, obviously, Someone made it. But this truth gets suppressed in unrighteousness, and we make up all these crazy ideas that, no, this could make itself. And you think of the absurdity of that. Um, our wristwatches couldn't make themselves. How in the world could this world make itself? So we're pushing against that clear truth. But the point for this morning's discussion is God has made us in a certain way that we know all these things. Now, with that information in mind, let's go back to John chapter 1 and verse 4. We're told there in him, in the word, was life. He's the fountain of life. And we're told that this life was the light of men. Now, what are we to understand by light of men? Well, by light of men, it points to this inner enlightenment that leaves us as rational creatures, as reasonable creatures, and as responsible creatures who have consciousness, who will have to answer to God when this lifetime is over. Does that make sense? 
And this is furthered if we continue in John's gospel. We just continue reading. We're told in verse 5 that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Some of you will have has not understood it. Some of the versions have not understood it. There's actually a debate about whether this uh, word, katalabin, should be uh, translated comprehend or should be translated overcome or should be translated understood. I don't care to get into that debate because I'll tell you, I always like it when I can have my cake and my, I can eat it too. I'm not giving up uh, my piece of cake on this one. I think that we should hold on to kind of both of these things. Uh, I remember years and years ago, and I've done that here. It's been a long time since I've done it here, but I remember teaching this to junior highs, junior and senior highs, right across the river over in East End. Tammy and I were involved in a youth ministry uh, over there, uh, namely to uh, high-risk teenagers. And what I used to do over there is I used to have someone turn off the lights. We'd all sit in the dark for a moment. And I'd have someone turn the lights back on, and I would just ask a simple question, where'd the, dar- where'd the darkness go? I'd be like, what? Where'd the darkness? Have you ever thought about it? Where'd the darkness go? Uh, and they'd all kind of look bewildered. And I said, well, look under your chair. Some of it's under your chair, and look in all the crevices. Look around. I mean, there it is under the heater. You can see a little bit of it there. What is it doing? It's fleeing. It it flees. And don't think for a moment that God, I mean, God created light, and he created darkness, and that darkness, the the, the way that the darkness flees from that light, I think, is glorifying, and it actually shows uh, one of his wonderful attributes, namely his sovereignty and power. You know how the darkness just flees. And, and, that, and that, there we would, we would look at overcome. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. It flees. Under the chair it goes. Under the table it goes. It, it goes everywhere. It flees away from the light. But I think we could also understand this to be, to be understood because darkness, darkness doesn't comprehend the light. Unless the Lord works in our hearts, we do not comprehend the beauty of Jesus Christ. In fact, our hearts are so dark um, and such a, we might not even really want to hear um, about Jesus. We might want to hear all of that uh, religious stuff. We might say, you know, don't give me all that Bible-thumping stuff. Uh, what's going on right there? Well, obviously, the, the, the darkness is, is pushing back. The darkness of the human heart is pushing back. But it doesn't understand. If if it could understand, if just a, a beam of, of God's light could be brought in for it to see the beauty of Jesus, if it could just be brought to see just a little bit of its culpability before God, its responsibility before God, and if it could be brought to see just a little bit of the salvation that's being offered in Jesus, well, that changes everything. So you have to have some understanding, right? So... I don't really argue about overcome and understood. I just write understood next to overcome or overcome next to understood in this verse. In verse 6, we're told there's a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He was a light, if you will, but he was a derivative light. He reflected the light. He reflected the light. But look at verse 9. Verse 9 is very instructive for our consideration this morning. Verse 9 says, The true light, 
John's not the light. He comes to bear witness to the light. But verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone. Now, see, our, I think that verse confirms what we've been saying. This is to be, to be understood in the widest uh, significance, if you will, in the widest sense that all human beings are enlightened. I, I don't think it's talking about salvation here. John will talk about salvation elsewhere in this gospel as he talks about light. But here, here he's developing the fact that we've all, all human beings, all rational human beings have been given this light. The true light, which is the word, enlightens everyone. And he was coming into the world. He was coming into the world. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to John chapter 8 and verse 12. And there Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Are you starting to feel the weight of that? I am the fountain of life, and I am he who enlightens everyone. Yeah, we could paraphrase and say, I am the one who has enlightened you. Can you feel the weight of that? It's such a massive statement that he makes right there. And we could add to it. We could add to it. Um, we could add our text that we read earlier, Isaiah 42. And in Isaiah 42... Here we have one, the first of what we call the suffer or the servants' songs, if you will. And here we have um, the words, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. Now, someone says, whoa, wait a second. That sounds like something I read in the New Testament. Yes, it's quoted in the New Testament, isn't it? My memory serves me right. Matthew 12 picks this up and quotes this and applies this to Jesus. It applies this to Jesus. God is speaking through Isaiah 700 years before Jesus comes, and this text is speaking of him. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. See how God's doing it intricately? This is speaking of the fountain of life there, isn't it? And if you look at verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. I will give you as a light for the nations. Now, let's take that back to John chapter 8. And when Jesus makes this announcement, namely, that I am the light of the world, what do we have here? Here we have the fulfillment of that text spoken 700 years ago. Here we have the light right before their eyes. God promised to bring the light. And here he is. He says, I am the light of the world. We could add to this that it's a claim to being God himself 
You don't need to turn here. I'll just read a couple of passages for you from the Psalms. And again, what are we doing? We're just gathering from the Bible. We're just looking through the Bible for places where uh, this is taught. And uh, in Psalm 27, verse 1, for example, uh, there uh, we're told, the psalmist says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God is referred to there as the light. Uh, Psalm 36.9 is especially um, um, important to me. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. There we see the fountain of life, and we see light put in the same verse. The reason why I'm so fond of that verse is some of you have seen the little ARP um, uh, pen that I wear once in a while. It's a shield with a cross on it, and there's a script so small you can't read it, but there's a scripture quote in there, and it's, um, it's uh, Psalm 36, verse 9 is quoted in there, namely, um, the words, in your light do we see light. So in him was life, uh, if you will, or with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. So there God is making... or. Um, Jesus is making a claim to be God with these verses. Now, uh, a couple more things, and we'll start putting this together. Um, If you look at Exodus with me, Exodus, just a couple more things. If you're being flooded this morning, it's recorded. You can listen to it again. Um, It's okay. Exodus. As you've heard me say, I always want to have lots for everyone. I don't want to come to. The, I don't want to be one of those hosts that doesn't prepare enough food for everybody. Exodus thirteen, verse. Uh, let me see. Let's start with verse seventeen. Exodus thirteen, verse seventeen. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of Philistines although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Now, uh, here, um, um, Israel's being delivered out of Egypt uh, under Moses. And if you look at verse 21, Here we're told that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Verse 22, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, did not depart from before the people. Now, with this in mind, let's think about our context in John 8. The Feast of Booths has just occurred. And I've been making a lot of references in terms from the Feast of Booths. It's a, commem- a commem- commemoration, if you will, of the wandering of the ancient Israelites in the wilderness. And we were looking a couple of last week, I think, what it was, I don't remember now, but uh, we were looking at this water rite that was served uh, at the Feast of Booths. Where the, you remember the uh, story of the priest going to the Pool of Siloam and dumping the, uh, filling the golden pitcher, if you will, uh, and taking it into the temple and pouring it on the altar, and pouring it on the altar. Uh, this was to commemorate uh, God's provision of rain, if you will. And it, furthermore, it also 
was a commemoration of God's promise to pour His Holy Spirit out in the last days, if you will. Uh, there was another rite that took place, R-I-T-E, and it was referred to as the rite of lights, the rite of lights. And what they would do is they would light these large candles, uh, utilizing the technology, the best technology they had at the time. If they were doing it today, it would probably be a battery of halogen lights or a battery of, of LEDs, but they were lighting these candles. They were getting it as bright as they could. Now, why were they doing that? Because they were commemorating God's guidance and protection of their fathers in the wilderness, namely that he did not depart from them ever. He was a glory cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. If he was only a cloud in the day or a cl only a cloud, they wouldn't be able to see him at night. But at night, he was a pillar of fire that come out of the cloud, if you will. But in the daytime, in the daytime, in his loving graciousness, he clothed his glory, if you will, with a cloud. And what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing in our text this morning? Well, at the heels of this Feast of Booths, Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. And what is he saying? He's saying to his people, you're here to commemorate. You've been commemorating the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And what he is saying is, I am that pillar of fire. And Jesus had clothed his glory, hadn't he? He clothed his glory. I mean, to look at him, we wouldn't have seen his glory. Why? Because in his lovingness, he clothed his glory. If he would have revealed his glory, no one would have been able to stand it. Just as the cloud gloried that pillar of fire in the daytime, Jesus, his glory is his glory, if you will, is, is, is covered. But in this announcement, what happens? What happens is there's a crack in the covering, and there we see a ray of light. And what do we see? Here is the pillar of fire. Here is the glory cloud. Here is God in the flesh. Here is the one who is the one who has enlightened us all. Now do you feel the weight of this text? It's extraordinary. And, it, and it, we really don't get what follows this until we begin to feel this. For Jesus then gives a promise. In chapter 8, verse 12, he says, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. an extraordinary promise this is. It's important that we understand what it means to follow him. Following Jesus isn't just making a, paying lip service to Jesus and saying, I'm a believer, but following Jesus actually means that we're actually submitting and surrendering to him and aligning our lives under his lordship. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean anything short of that. He, he's mine. He's mine. And my new principle in life is to follow him. And notice the promise that he makes. Everyone who follows him will, never, will no longer walk in darkness. Three quick points of application here this morning. Most of our message this morning is just developing this, but let me leave you with a couple, with a couple um, 
Just three quick things of how to apply this. Notice whoever follows me, Jesus says, that is to obey him, to submit to him, surrender him, will have the light of life. That is, we will have the Lord. He's offering himself to us. We will have him. And to have the Lord means no less than we'll have his direction to lead us. We'll have his direction to lead us. A majority of the phone calls that I get, the majority of the text messages that I get, a majority of the correspondence that I get is help with direction. Can you help me with direction? We are in constant need of that, aren't we? And here's the promise. He will direct us. He will direct us. We will follow him. He will direct us. We have his illumination, if you will, to give us wisdom. How often have you needed wisdom? Listen, when we need wisdom, don't rack your brain. Just make a confession. I don't have the wisdom for this. And pray. Lord, give me your wisdom. Give me your wisdom. I need your wisdom. Oh, it's right here in this promise. Would he give me his wisdom? Well, let me read it to you again. I am the light of the world. I'm able and I am willing. How do we know this? Well, whoever follows me will not have, whoever will not walk in darkness will have the light of life. There you have his promise. Will he give me wisdom? Absolutely, he'll give you wisdom. Sure, he'll give you wisdom. He's going to give you direction. He's going to give you illumination. And he's going to give you righteousness. Righteousness. How often do we need that? How often do we need that? We need that when we've blown it, don't we? Or we need that simply, maybe we haven't blown it, but, but the flesh has recalled something that we did in our past, and now here it goes. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Where we can't believe we did that. And that can be torturous, can't it? Will we come back to this? Listen, we're not going to walk in darkness. We're not going to walk in that darkness as we follow the Lord. Why? He's the light of life. He gives us his righteousness. So we have his direction to lead us. We have his illumination to instruct us and give us wisdom. And we have his righteousness to clothe us. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this passage. What an incredible and glorious passage it is, Father. Lord, we pray that you'd be pleased to press this passage upon our hearts afresh this morning, Lord. Father, may we see the gravity of this passage. May we see the the weight of this passage. Oh, it's so wonderful that our Savior is all these things, that he's a fountain of our lives, He is the one who has enlightened us, and he is the one who enlightens us. And we thank you, O Lord, for the direction and the illumination and the righteousness that he provides for us, O Father. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.